I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. This is not going to be the text of our whole sermon, but I want to introduce our sermon during this hour, which is going to be more of a topical sermon, by reading a few verses from the beginning of Psalm 78. In our recent sermons on the providence of God, we have considered the special care of God's providence, which is the church, and we've looked at God's providence over the nations. And in our latest sermon in this series, we began to look at how we interpret God's providence, and this providence is not only that which takes place now, but also in history. And uh, in the beginning of this psalm, there is an exhortation to remember history, to meditate upon it and, and recite it and pass on the stories, uh, the true stories that uh, we have heard to our own children. The psalmist begins, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. Before we consider the scriptures on this theme, let's now pray for the help of God once again. Holy Father, we thank you that indeed throughout the history of this world, there have been many marvelous works that testify of your purposes of grace to call out of this world a people that you call by your name, a people whom you have forgiven and you have cleansed in the blood of Christ, a people in whose hearts you have placed the Holy Spirit to transform them and make them like the Lord Jesus. And we pray that as you have done these things throughout history, and done marvelous things in raising up a church and protecting it, we pray that as we reflect upon these things that you would give us understanding as to how it is that we might understand your ways. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. At the tail end of our family vacation, which we just took, I this is something I couldn't talk anybody else into doing with me, but I went and visited Mass Mocha, which is the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. And while I am not an ardent fan of modern art, I find it to be a telling visual representation of the philosophy and the thinking of our era. And after the horrendous ordeal of two world wars, and also in the age now, in the, after that in the second half of the 20th century in which nuclear war could incinerate the great nations of the world, the only philosophy that seemed realistic to people was the philosophy of nihilism. Nihilism is the rejection of all moral and religious principles and the belief that life is meaningless. The thinkers have concluded that their situation in the world is clear proof that in the present darkness there is no there is no philosophy, there is no perspective that makes any sense. And one of the displays at Mass Mocha gives a textual representation of the nihilism I just described. And here I'm referring to the inflammatory essays by Jenny Holzer. 
filling up a very large wall, the inflammatory essays are a collection of texts, and each one of them is exactly 100 words. And these were originally printed on colored paper, and they were posted around downtown Manhattan, and subsequently there have been displays of these texts throughout the world. And in the Mass Mocha display, there is a very large wall that contains these sayings, these essays. There are pastel squares. They measure, I think, each of them 17 by 17. And all of them have the text in capital letters. And all of them have 100 words exactly. And these texts explore the need for social change. They call for breaking down our system and express despair over our current condition. Needless to say, I found them very depressing to read. Let me just give you one example. Destroy superabundance. Starve the flesh. Shave the hair. Expose the bone. Clarify the mind. Define the will. Restrain the senses. Leave the family. Flee the church. Kill the vermin. Vomit the heart. Forget the dead. Limit time, forego amusement, deny nature, reject acquaintances, discard objects, forget truths, dissect myth, stop motion, block impulse, choke sobs, swallow chatter. Scorn joy, scorn touch, scorn tragedy, scorn liberty, scorn constancy, scorn hope, scorn exaltation, scorn reproduction, scorn variety, scorn embellishment, scorn release, scorn rest. Scorn sweetness, scorn light. It's a question of form as much as function. It is a matter of revulsion. That's a real happy message to live by, isn't it? Well, that's what people are reading. That's the way they're thinking in our generation. And completely absent from this so-called essay is the concept of divine providence. It represents the nihilistic impulse to throw the idea of God's rule over all things, and to what nihilists believe is the garbage can of bad ideas. According to Karl Marx and according to Nietzsche and Feuerbach and Freud, religion is just a projection of the human mind to help us get through difficult times. And oppressed by the miserable realities that are all around us, man has created these religious illusions, and he can escape his misery by them. And so Freud wrote, the idea of God's providence was thought to be one of these imaginings. He says, we tell ourselves that this is a beautiful indeed, that it, that it is a very beautiful indeed, that there is a God, a creator of the world, a kind of providence, a moral order, and a life hereafter. But it is very striking that all this is exactly as we wish it for ourselves. But to our own generation... The chaos that's been breaking out on our streets throughout this year, this is a further confirmation of the conclusion that the world makes no sense. And the idea of a sovereign God in control of all these events, this is preposterous to the thinking of the people of our age. And this is the crisis that prompts me to speak to you during these weeks concerning the interpretation of providence in history. In our last sermon, we only had time to cover the first two of five points. And in your outlines, you have, if you did print them out in advance, you have those five points. And uh, we're going to, I want to just review these first two points. And we're only going to get now uh, this, this morning to the third of these uh, five major points. But first of all, 
we looked at the relationship between providence and history. And the way we interpret providence is going to determine the way we evaluate history. Because history is just the record of providence. And providence and history are really the same thing, looked at from two different points of view. As Moritz Roberts has aptly defined providence, it is history as God has ordained it and watches over it. And because this is the case, you can't really understand history if you don't have a correct view of providence. You see, a man may be expert in details, but he can't automatically enable himself to, to, be a, to understand the overall significance, you see, of the events of history. And in order that we might understand the relationship of history and providence, we have stressed that we need to recognize the two sides of history, the divine side and the human side. On the divine side, history is the revelation of God's eternal plan. And it's the revelation of the successive unfolding of that plan with a view to his own glory and the eternal happiness of his people. That's the divine side. But then the human side, what we can see, what people say and what they do, this is the account of the world and the deeds of the human race in a natural, uh, observable manner. But history is incomplete when we just look at what's on the outside with, with what man says and with man, what man does. It's incomplete unless we recognize that behind these events is the divine hand of God. And we also stressed under this first main heading that in order that we might understand this relationship of history and providence, we also need to recognize the twofold alternatives of history, the alternative of blessing and judgment. As the Israelites were about to enter into the land of promise, Moses preached a very long sermon. It's a powerful sermon. As you come to the end of Leviticus and of Deuteronomy, they record different parts of that sermon. And he set before them the blessings they would enjoy if they obeyed and the curses that would come upon them if they rebelled. And on a personal level, we can't conclude that a person is being blessed or cursed by what we see happening to them because the ultimate blessing personally comes in the next life or the ultimate curse comes in the next life. But the case of nations is very different because we don't have whole nations going into heaven or whole nations going into hell at the end. And whatever rewards or punishments come upon nations, they take place during the present age. And certain sins are national sins because they prevail among the people. They also are national sins in our case because of our representative government. We elect presidents. We elect representatives to carry out our will, what we want in our national government. And so if the agenda is evil, the actions that are taken, they, they represent the evil will of the people. And while we cannot in every case declare with certainty that a certain nation is being judged for its sins, when a calamity comes upon us especially, it's right that we ask why it has come upon us. Why have we had this pandemic? We need to ask that question. Why have we had this economic crisis? Why have we had this mayhem allowed to descend upon us? Amos 3.6 says, If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? And then, having noted the relationship of providence and history, we came in our second major point last time to look at the contrasting interpretations of providence and history. 
And because of his idolatry and because of his wickedness, the prophet came, to, uh, Elijah came to Ahab. And he told Ahab, the wicked king, that God was going to send a famine upon the northern tribes. And in 1 Kings 18, we read of what happened when Ahab and Elijah met for the first time after that three and a half year famine. And Ahab's point of view was that Elijah was the troubler of Israel. He had brought prosperity to an end because he had prayed down this famine. But according to Elijah's view, it was Ahab's idolatry. That's what really brought the famine upon the land. And to worldly men and women, it's uptight Christians that wreck it all for everybody. They spoil all their fun. They have all these rules they want to put on everybody. They put, put the brakes upon the progressive agenda that everybody wants. And the, therefore, they're bringing troubler upon the, on the land. They are the troublers of America. But to godly Christians, it is reckless to find sinners who are ruining the country by bringing God's curse upon the land. But now we come, having considered these contrasting interpretations of providence, we come this morning to a third major heading, and it is the duty of interpreting providence. And here I want you to turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 16. At first, it may not seem like a very important matter, how a person interprets the events of the past or how a person interprets the present. But nobody that takes the Christian faith seriously should adopt this indifferent attitude about the meaning of God's providence in the past or in the present. It is the duty of God's church to shed the light of God's word on what's happening and what did happen. And this is why we have been in our sermons uh, sprinkling very generously in our sermons comments upon what's been going on in our nation. And it is that we might shed the light of God's word, his perspective upon those events. And if we're to understand God's providential working in the present, we need to understand the past. Uh, Jesus charged the Jewish leaders with the sin of failing to, to discern and recognize and understand providence even in their own day. And notice how this takes place, beginning with verse 1 of Matthew 16. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Now the great events and movements of history, they have a meaning that we ignore to our own peril. And admittedly, there are vast areas of providence that we're not qualified to interpret. We're going to get to that later on in this sermon. But that doesn't excuse men from their failure to interpret crucial events and, and major developments in history, especially even now the current events that are taking place. And at the moment that's described here in Matthew chapter 16, the leaders that came to Jesus, they, they asked for a sign, and this quest for a sign was very insincere. Matthew says they came testing Jesus. They were wanting to trip him up. 
Jesus has just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few little fish. And Jesus commends them for their ability to read the signs of, of, of coming weather. A red sky means, a red sky in the evening means, means good weather. And a morning a red sky with clouds means the opposite. And how sad it was, therefore, that they could do this little primitive weather forecast, but they couldn't read the signs of the great events that were taking place in their own times. And as religious leaders, above all, these ones, these leaders, ought to be able to read the signs of the times. And especially they should see that the, in the coming of the Messiah, and the coming of the one that is speaking to them, God was doing something amazing. But a wicked generation can't read the signs. And the proof that they can't do this is that they ask for a sign right after Jesus has just given them one. And just as we ought to pay attention to the ominous signs of imminent bad weather, dear people, we must not be oblivious, oblivious, you see, to the ominous developments in our society. We need to read the signs of the times. The rampant rioting in our streets, the injustice that many feel, the calls for defunding the police, the skyrocketing shootings and murders, the call for Marxist solutions, we should not fail to notice these things. And likewise, we ought to pay attention to developments that receive less attention by the media. Let me just mention one ominous sign. It is the evidence that in Western nations, America included, marriage is in a free fall. The percentage of American children born to unmarried mothers has quadrupled. In 1974, there were 10% of the births that came from unwed mothers. And it has quadrupled to around 40% in 2018. This is the latest statistics I could come with. These were from the CDC and from the United Nations. And according to a 2019 Pew Research Center study, among adults aged from 18 to 44, the percentage of those who say they have ever married is 50%. While those in the same bracket, they say those who have ever cohabited, it's much more, 59%. And as evangelicals, we are rightfully troubled over, this normal, over the normalization of homosexual behavior. We preach about that. But the institution of marriage, I say, it is being damaged far more, you see, by this cohabitation than by the much more rarer cases of homosexuality. Among those aged 18 to 29, a whopping 78% says it's perfectly fine for couples never to marry. And among Protestants who don't claim to be born again, 76% say it's okay. And most troubling to me, even among white evangelicals, 36% share this view. In Matthew 24, we have the great discourse of the Lord Jesus on the subject of last things. And in that discourse, which is a few chapters later here, the Lord Jesus informs his people of the most significant events that will occur in the course of human history right up to the very end. And in particular, he describes what will take place just prior to the fall of Jerusalem around A.D. 70 and events that will come prior to the 
destruction of the whole world and the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And from our perspective, one of these events is past. This, this destruction in 70 AD, that's past. But the other, the event of Christ's second coming, that's yet to come. And with regard to both of these momentous events, Jesus tells his disciples, you must watch. You know, a guard is posted to watch, you see, against the enemy that would come in at night. And he tells his disciples that conditions will be very bad at the time when he comes. He says they will be just like they were at the time of Noah, right before the flood. And in verse 42 of Matthew 24, Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. You don't know the exact hour, he says. But when you see these signs, when you see these things happening that I've just mentioned to you, you must intensify your watch. And clearly the implication is that Christians are to be awake to major events that are taking place, to major trends that are going on in the world. And they are to attempt to understand them, at least to some extent, and to see in them the warnings of that which is yet to come. Failure to watch, failure to be awake to what's taking place in the course of history, according to the Lord Jesus, is foolish and dangerous. And this is supremely true of the unbelieving world. But it's also true of God's people. If we don't watch, we are likely to become complacent. And conversely, if we're not aware of the manner in which God works through dark providences, we won't, we'll get discouraged. So on one hand, we get careless. And on the other hand, when we get depressed about everything that's going on, we need the encouragement of having the perspective of providence. We need to be fully aware of events going on and of what the Bible says about these events. And to be ignorant of these developments is to be ignorant, and to be ignorant also to what, what the Bible says about them, it is to be unprepared for what God is about to do and is doing in history. And to be prepared at the end when Jesus comes is to lose our souls eternally. Now let me have you turn with me to another passage. Luke chapter 13. On the day after a disaster had taken place, people always ask the same kind of questions. Who gets, who's to be blamed for what took place? Why did God allow it to happen? What do the victims deserve to get this suffering? And... People ask those kinds of questions after September 11, 2001, when, as you know, two planes slammed into the Twin Towers of the New York World Trade Center. And thousands of workers were incinerated by the fireballs that took place. Thousands died in that fireball and, and trapped above and among those underneath when the, when the towers crushed them as they came down. And, of course, Everyone afterwards wanted to know who was to blame for this attack. And a lot of attention was given, therefore, to the 19 hijackers. Also attention was given to where they came from, Saudi Arabia, and where they were trained in Afghanistan with al-Qaeda. And others thought it was at least in part an inside job, maybe even involving in some way some perverse people in the uh, U.S. government. And I'm not here to solve that whole debate. But inevitably, my whole point is this. 
people begin to ask, now, what, what's behind this? Who did this? And, and also they want to know why God allows so many deaths and so many thousands of grieving loved ones that have just lost somebody. Who was to blame? Why didn't God stop it, we ask? People ask similar questions after December 26th in 2004, when a powerful tsunami slammed into the coast of Indonesia and Sri Lanka in India. Nearly 230,000 perished. Millions lost their homes. So again, people started asking, why did God let this happen? What did these victims do to deserve this deadly deluge? And similar questions were being asked about a tragic event in Jesus' day. Let's notice how this takes place. Verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no. But unless you repent... You will all likewise perish. Here Jesus challenges the assumption of those who told him of the slaughter of the Galileans by Pilate, even right when they were offering sacrifices. And he challenges the assumption that these Galileans must have been really evil, because this is, this is what happened to them. And remember, up in Galilee, that's, they, they were... That was Galilee, the Gentiles, they, the Jews thought they were kind of bad people up there, even though they were Jews. And so it must have been something really bad that they did to bring on them this judgment. And Jesus challenges that assumption. He says instead that you ought to be asking another question. Instead of asking what bad thing did they do, when disaster strikes, he says, you need to remind yourself of your own sinfulness, of your own inevitable demise of your own eternal destiny. And unless you likewise repent, you shall likewise perish. And to stress this point, he points to another current event. Verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now the Bible is the only place where this event is specifically mentioned. Some people have surmised this was a construction accident of some sort. And in any case, the fact that Jesus was aware of this event, of this tower falling upon people and killing them, it shows us that Jesus was aware of current events. He knew what was going on, you see, in the world. He knew about that event. How, how he knew, we don't know. Now, obviously, he didn't have cable TV. He didn't have many other of the vehicles of, of uh, the media that we have to get the news today. Perhaps it was just by being in the marketplace once a day where you could pick up on what's going on in the world. Somehow Jesus, as it were, read his paper of, of what had just happened that day. And perhaps... He got it from the marketplace, we don't know. But the point that I want to make is that Jesus was aware of these events. And he expected his hearers were also aware of these events. And even more important than this, he stressed the importance of both uh, the understanding properly what those events mean. 
and how we ought to react to those events. Now today people would probably blame God for what has been happening in our, in our country. Why did he stop all these riots? Why did he stop these killings? And regarding the incidents that Jesus interprets, most of the people, they thought that the victims, they were especially to blame for what has just happened. They believed in the sovereignty of God. At that point, that aspect of their theology was right. And they concluded, because God is sovereign in all things, that the people that died, they must have been unusually wicked. And they were being punished for their unusual wickedness. So Jesus points to what ought to be in our minds first when we hear these events. Instead of thinking about how bad that person was, he says, unless we repent, we also will perish. And not only calamities, but also challenges for service and bravery in the providence of God call for an interpretation of providence. In the early days of David's rule, Israel was in a very weakened state. Remember the Philistines? They had been preying upon the Israelites. They had brought them very low under Saul's rule. And some of these tribes that had been under Saul's rule, after David was made king, they might have thought to themselves, well, let's just let Judah handle these things. That's David there. David's their king. He's not really our king very much. Hey, let them handle it. David's from Judah, and these enemies are not bothering us. But in 1 Chronicles 12 and verse 32, and here I'll just quote this text, we read of the sons of Issachar who had an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And they rallied to David's side in countering the enemies of Israel. They had an understanding of the times to know what to do. And in addition to calamities, in addition to such a call to duty that, that was, I just spoke about, there are also manifestations of God's redemptive grace that we need to understand, that we need to interpret. And above all, the central event of history, of course, was the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that called for interpretation. And even this event doesn't speak its own language and interpret itself. And many of those that gathered around the cross, many of those who heard the cry of dereliction, my, dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They thought he was calling for Elias to help them. They totally misinterpreted what was going on. And some people that were there, they could only see the impotency of the, of the hanging Messiah, so-called, and, and they mocked his apparent inability to save himself. And even two of his disciples, they remained much in the dark about what has just been taking place. And so as they walked on the road to Emmaus a couple days later, they said, we hope that it was he who should redeem Israel. And indeed, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things came to pass. They knew all about these things that had happened, of uh, the death of, of, of the Lord Jesus. And the revelatory instruction that Jesus had given them, he had told them again and again that he had to die, he, had to rise, he was going to rise from the dead. They ignored it all. And therefore, the providential event was misunderstood. And then as he continued to give with them, Jesus began to expound the revelatory words of the Old Testament that interpreted what has just taken place. And beyond this, when they stopped and they had a meal, and the breaking of the bread, 
and in the prayer that Jesus offered up of thanksgiving, because they had seen Jesus do this again and again, at that moment their eyes were opened and their hearts were ignited to see who he was and their faith recognized the the resurrected Jesus. Well, I trust you can see from these passages the duty of being aware of current events, the duty also of interpreting these providential events. And historians, they are likewise responsible for interpreting history. The Greek word historeo, this was used by the Attic Greeks and originally it meant to learn by inquiry or investigation. It was a word that was used by Paul in Galatians 1.18 to describe his interview with Peter in Jerusalem. And so history, it not only involves studying all the facts and making sure you got the dates right and the quotes right, all the details right. That's important in studying history. It not only involves that, but it involves interpreting those things. What relationship do those things have with one another? What, is they, what do they mean? And so when history is rightfully interpreted, two benefits follow. And I've mentioned these benefits there in the outlines if you have it with you. And the first thing is that history, as we study and we begin to interpret, it's a help in interpreting the present. The interpretation of the past helps us interpret the present. We can better understand the present when we know the, the roots of the present and the past. Just take, for example, we can have a greater appreciation of our Reformed heritage when we come to an understanding of the great struggles that Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin went through as they sought to come to grips with the meaning of the word of God and as they sought to defend those truths in, uh, in opposition to those that would tear them down. And understanding the grand sweep of history also, this keeps us from becoming narrow and provincial. There's a real tendency as churches to think, well, we're the right ones. We, we, we studied, we got it all from the Bible. But some of these other ones out there, they, they, they messed it all up and they just are not as smart biblically as we are. And we can get very proud, you see, with what we believe and what we do. But the more we see the broad sweep of history and how God has used people, not in our own denomination, but many others, this keeps us from being narrow in our outlook. In an essay entitled Uses and Results of Church History, the Southern theologian Robert L. Dabney, he writes this, If we knew nothing of the transactions of past ages, we should only know those phases of man's nature and should only have an experimental acquaintance with those affairs that fall under our own limited observation. You see what he's saying? If we don't study history, only thing we're going to know about is just what's happening right where we can see, right here and now. And he goes on to say, what a mere patch is this in the great field of life. He who knows but this must be a man of a most narrow mind. And so history is an aid in interpreting the present. But it also provides guidance in the present. As we come to a fuller understanding of the past, we are protected from ruinous errors. And this is especially important for those that are called upon to be as shepherds of God's people. And also, I would say, to be rulers in, in the civil part of our, our lives, rulers in the state. Dabney goes on to say this, the man who undertakes to teach, to legislate, or to govern, either in church or state, 
without historical wisdom, is a reckless tyro. His wicked folly is like that of the quack who should venture upon the responsibilities of the physician without having either seen or read practice. See what he's saying? The one that that wants to be a governor or a president or whatever, if he has no idea what's happened in our nation throughout the past, he's just like a a quack doctor that's never gone to medical school and never had his internship to have oversight and how to perform operations and so on. He's just a quack, you see, thinks he knows it all, and and he's a danger to everybody, therefore. The quickest way to explode bad theology and bad ideas is to display how they got started. And we can look back to history to see how they got started. And often there is no way that is so efficacious, therefore, to disarm modern heretics as to prove that their pretended improvements, they're really the same thing as the errors of schismatics hundreds of years ago that were condemned and rejected by the church long ago. And yet having recognized the value of history in interpreting the present and in guiding us in the in, in interpreting the, the, the present, also in guiding us in the present, I want to just add a, a cautionary word here. It helps us interpret things, and we need to interpret, but we need to be very cautious. We need to recognize our limitations in interpreting providence and history. In Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 15, the prophet says to the Lord, Truly you are God who hides yourself. O God of Israel, the Savior. He speaks of God as being a hidden God. A God that doesn't reveal everything that he's doing. And while it's our duty to seek for the meaning of God's ways, there will always be aspects of his providence that are hidden from us. The Lord doesn't always make a plain in every way what he's doing. He has told us that it is the glory of God of of God to conceal a thing. Uh, Proverbs chapter 25 too. The Lord Jesus has said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. God is not, he's not promised to satisfy our idle curiosity about these events. After discoursing about the wonder of how God hangs the earth upon nothing, after he gives this discourse about the pillars of the earth trembling and how God stirs up the sea with his power, How God breaks up the storm. Job, after this wonderful discourse, he exclaims, indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. And how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? You can read of that in Job chapter 26. To comprehend fully the intentions of God's dealings. To read the vast plan from its inception to its consummation. This is going to be one of the grand studies, I say, of heaven. More will be revealed when it's all done. But we can't see the whole picture now. And terrible mistakes have been made by people that jump to the conclusion that God must be on their side in his providential dealings. The so-called German Christians, they saw the special finger of God. You might be surprised to hear this. They saw the special finger of God in Adolf Hitler's rise to power in 1933. The church, it was said by these Protestants, they could not without fault fail to recognize this providential sign, as they called it. 
After many years of sorrow, after much misunderstanding, Germany was on its way to greatness again. And Hitler was hailed as the providence of God. And the providence of God was hailed behind his rise to power. And it led to the all too popular conviction that this was a word of redemption, as they put it. These so-called German Christians, they spoke of the Lord of history. And he was at that moment in Germany's history speaking with a clear voice. And of course, this is before he started burning people in ovens and so on. But early on, you see, they, they interpreted it all as being God's providence. And this led a group of theologians at Württemberg to come out in 1934 with this statement. We are full of thanks to God that he, as Lord of history, has given us Adolf Hitler, our leader and savior from our difficult lot. We acknowledge that we, with body and soul, are bound and dedicated to the German state and to its Führer. This bondage and duty contains for us as evangelical Christians its deepest and most holy significance in its obedience to the command of God. And referring to, his, to Hitler's rise to power, in another declaration of 1933, there was a declaration. To this turn of history, we say a thankful yes, God has given him to us. To him be the glory. As bound to God's word, we recognize in the great events of our day a new commission of God to his church. How could they have been more wrong? But they were bold, you see, to interpret, and they falsely interpreted providence. Now, we could cite other instances of catastrophically wrong interpretations. And the problem, though, with all these false interpretations is not the fact that they want to recognize the hand of God in everything. That, that's, that we can accept that. The problem is assuming what we, that we know the meaning of it all in every instance. And the Bible plainly teaches us that God's providence, yes, it extends to everything, but our problem, you see, all too often, is that we allow our own prejudices to dictate the meaning of providence. You see, these these Germans, they naturally were prejudiced to their own nation, thinking that they were good, and God was blessing them. And that prejudice, you see, led them to a wrong conclusion. And all too often, Christians have been ready to jump to the conclusion that some extraordinary development, this is God's special providence. And, and they want to involve, you see, God in, in doing what they think is the thing that needs to be done. And that God is ratifying their dubious plans. And indeed, we see in the Bible instances in which God intervened on behalf of his people in a remarkable way. How can you quarrel with, with the calling it a providential dealing when God sent an angel that killed 185,000 Assyrians that had come to do battle against God's people? But these instances, they weren't subjectively interpreted. They were events concerning which God gave his unmistakable interpretation. And we get into dangerous territory when we subconsciously always identify our land, our people, our cause, as if it's just like it was Israel and God's nation Israel and God's chosen people. And therefore we as Americans are his chosen people. Therefore he must bless us. The same principle is true with respect to interpreting God's providence in our individual lives. In 1 John 9, Jesus made it plain that in the case of the blind man, his blindness was neither due to his own sin 
nor to that of his parents. And likewise, when things go well with us, we must not assume, you see, that it's because we've been really good lately. That's why it's going well with us. I confess to wondering myself the opposite. And knowing my own sinful nature, my own sinful uh, desires, I wonder why it is it's going so well sometimes. Why is it God chastening me here a little bit more? That's, that's the thing that troubles me sometimes. But on the other hand, when everything seems to be going against us, as it was with the case of Job, we mustn't misinterpret that either. We mustn't assume that our trials are evidence that God's angry with us, that his wrath is being poured out upon us because we are especially wicked. Especially in reading God's providential dealings with us in our own individual lives, we do well to pay attention to the counsel of A.J. Gordon, who once said this, God's providence is like the Hebrew Bible. We must begin at the end and read backward in order to understand it. And often the external events that befall a lover of God, they're indistinguishable from the events that befall those that don't love God. And some who are godly, they prosper, while other godly people starve. Some ungodly people prosper, while ungodly people starve. You remember how Asaph struggled with this as he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And as he goes into detail concerning that in Psalm 73, perhaps you would like to turn with me to that psalm. Psalm 73, he speaks of how he gives his overall perspective, but then he breaks off from that, explains how he came to that perspective. His overall perspective is that God is good to Israel, verse 1. But he didn't think that at, 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 a, at an earlier point. He goes on to say in verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, and their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. And then he says, verse 12, Behold, these are the ungodly. We're always at ease. The increase in riches. He says, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. You see what he says? Everything goes well for them and they're wicked. But I'm trying to follow God. I'm trying to be obedient. I'm trying to confess my sins and walk with the Lord and I get chastened every day. Why? Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. It was not until he considered the end of the story. It was not until he read Providence backwards, you see, as A.J. Gordon stressed. It was not till then that he understood the ways of of God. Now, is it meaningless? Is it irrational to love and obey God? Far from it. We know that all of our trials, as well as all of our blessings, God works them together for good. 
And we know that in glory the full purpose of all these things will be fully revealed. But in the meantime, we are called to trust in the hand that leads us, the hand of our God. And our confidence in God, you see, is not based upon figuring out what he's doing. That's not the basis of our confidence in him. That's not the basis of trusting him in difficult, dark days. There's a popular misconception that because a believer affirms that God has purposes that extend to everything, he says God's providence is is in all. There's a popular misconception that because he confesses that providence in everything, that therefore he must know what it means. And that's not the case. The fact that you and I know, you see, a a, a friend that has a plan for remodeling his kitchen doesn't mean that you and I know what that plan is. We don't know what contractor he talked with. We don't know the blueprints. We don't know the kind of of wood that's going to be used and, and so forth. In the case of God's plan for each one of us, our peace doesn't depend upon knowing the end from the beginning. Our peace flows from the fact that the one that is directing our providence has a plan for all of us. And he is a good and a gracious God. Our our confidence is in the fact that a good God wouldn't do something ultimately terrible to his people. And because he is a good God, I know whatever he plans is good. And this truth, it also frees us from the frustration of trying to force what we think into God's plan. And let me just give you an example. We'll get to this when we get back to Genesis sooner or later. But God promised Abraham and Sarah a son. And eventually it was through that son that all the nations of the world would be blessed. Not through that son particularly, but through that son's sons, and that son's son, and all the way down through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God promised a special son. But in her unbelief, Sarah wanted to help God's providence along. It wasn't happening right away. It was taking too long, you see. And so she wanted to help it along, you see. And she came up with this idea of giving her maid to Abram as a concubine. And through them, then he he will through her get this son that's been promised. And this, as you know, if you know the story, it only served to introduce intense conflict, terrible grief into their home. So let's never forget that God's providence doesn't need our help with our dubious ideas that have no biblical justification. And understanding this is wonderfully liberating. Sticking to the path of obedience, we can trust in a faithful God that his purposes will be worked out in the end. Yes, there may be times when in the anguish of our trials, We cry to the Lord asking him why he has brought this upon us. Why this difficulty or setback is happening. But we may be assured that at the end, when finally we read it all from the end, we will see the wisdom and the faithfulness and the love of our Heavenly Father all along the way. Well, I'm not going to have time to I went to all the applications that were listed at the bottom of the outlines. But I want to leave you with a solemn charge and a wonderful encouragement that grows out of what we've been saying this morning. By way of solemn charge, may each one of us remember his and her own solemn responsibility to God. Don't imagine that God's 
providential government is divorced from governing the government of his word. His word has to govern us. And we know what the word says. We don't know the meaning always of, of, of his providential works. We ask ourselves, what does God have in store for our country? Elections always seem to turn upon which candidate has the most convincing plan for financial prosperity in our land. That's usually, sooner or later, the number one issue in electing a president. And I want to just ask you, what presidential candidate ever makes the very first plank of his platform the way to blessing is the way of repentance and humility? Do you ever hear a president, presidential candidate have that? This is the most, this is what I think we all need to be doing as Americans more than anything else. And I pledge that my, my administrations will be administration of humility and repentance. You ever hear that? Far from it. The way nations rise in godliness and value, or the way in which they sink in ruin, is by individuals. And these individuals either walk humbly with God and renounce their uh, and, re, and turn from their sin, or they renounce their portion in Jacob and God's and in God's kingdom. And therefore, let every man, let every woman examine his and her heart. These are critical days. But each of us cry to God to enable us to mortify our sins and to refuse to allow them to rule over us. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And if the nation repents, if the individuals repent, including us, it will be only by each one of us bewailing our sins, believing in Christ, and fleeing the wrath to come. And it's the same case with any of you that are here this morning that don't know the Lord Jesus. The blessing is going to come to you, not as a result of the right president getting elected, not as a result, you see, of going to the right school, and getting the right recommendation. The blessing, the ultimate blessing is by your repenting of your sins. And you're personally trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he would save you from the wrath to come. New Testament opens up with people looking for a Messiah. That's going to deliver them from the Romans. A Messiah that's going to give them prosperity finally. He's going to come in power and glory they thought. Instead God announced the Messianic king through the ministry of John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist look like? What was his preaching like? So Jesus said to the multitudes, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. And so what should we be looking for now? Stern virtue sometimes is clothed in camel's hair. And on the other hand, the most debased vices and the most atrocious crimes are sometimes arrayed in purple and fine linen. Are we looking for greater wealth? God has chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith. He is looking for us to be humble again. We will never be truly great again until we are humble again until we are poor in spirit, until we mourn over our sins, and until we seek after righteousness, a righteousness that can only come from God. So this comes to us, this doctrine, by way of a solemn charge. But this doctrine also brings us wonderful encouragement. 
What does God have in store for the church? What is his ultimate plan for each of us as his children? Well, as we look all around us, everything seems to be coming apart in the seams in our country. But let's take heart, dear people. Deep in the secrets of God's heart is a unified plan, and it's gradually unfolding through history. And any attempt to unravel the tangled web of human affairs is, is, is doomed to, to, to fail. But the plan of God is anything to him and to his inspection. It, it isn't confusing to him. It isn't random. It's not a big chaos, chaotic mess to God. But until the end, it seems like that sometimes to us. And we won't see the full picture until we come to the end. And this is why we speak of the mystery of providence. Only in the last day will that mystery be unfolded. Just to use another analogy, you and I are like soldiers in a battle. We are fighting alongside thousands of others on the battlefield. And we are moving forward as, as, a, as a nation, so to speak, of Christians. I'm not talking about the nation of America. But I'm talking about as if we were Christians working, to, fighting a battle together. And we're moving forward, and, and we're doing this according to the purpose of a commander that we can't see. And that commander is behind us on a highly elevated spot. He has the map before him of the whole battlefield. He has in, in mind the, how he will send this brigade of this, at this point, at this point. And, and he has the whole idea, you see, in, in view. And sometimes in our little place where we are fighting, we are given orders that don't make sense to us. We only see the little part of the battle that's around us. And sometimes we're, we're tempted to imagine that we're bearing a disproportionate burden in this battle. We're having hardships that others are not having. And sometimes we might complain that we're being sidelined. We're being virtually useless. And sometimes the smoke of the battle, though, lifts just a little bit. And we can see the flag advancing ahead. We can hear the huzzah of the brethren in arms that are going before us. And we can gather at least in part that a, a partial victory is being won. But it is only after the battle is completely over that at last we can see from the leisure of triumph what took place. Then we will be able to understand the complicated whole. But until then, at best we see only glimpses of the great plan. We're responsible to try to discern what God's will is in these things, but we'll never see the full picture. A few years ago, we took a vacation up to Quebec and went to some of the museums in the city of Quebec. It's rated as one of the three most unusual cities in North America. And part of it is because of the stone wall that's around it. It's like a medieval city almost. But in, there's a big citadel in, in Quebec, as you go there, you can tour the citadel. And in one of the museums that describe what happened in the Battle of Quebec, I was especially struck by what I saw. The British forces, this was before the American Revolution, the British forces, they scale the cliffs, and they're huge cliffs that are, uh, Quebec is way high, and there are cliffs that go right down to the to St. Lawrence Seaway. And they, instead of doing a frontal attack, because the Quebecers, they thought that they were, they were invulnerable because of their posture. But instead, they flanked all the way around, and they climbed steep cliffs at another location. 
and they came around and attacked from behind. And the battle lasted 18 minutes. And yet, the thing that's striking to me about this, that battle, upon the, the, the result of that battle, about a third of our country depended. All the way from the St. Lawrence Seaway, all the way down to the Mississippi Delta, and many Midwestern sta- states in between. If, if the British had lost, that would have not been Protestant America. That would have been Catholic France. There would would have been a tremendously different, you see, outcome in the history of redemption, in the history of God's purposes in the world. We We could see, though, when we see these little things that, oh, man, this is evidence that God was doing something here. But still, we only get little glimpses of that plan. And it's only in the last day that we will see the whole. And on that day, the whole host of the redeemed will lift up loud voices singing, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We bless you. We magnify you that you are the God that oversees all things. And we bless you for the comfort that this brings to us in tumultuous times. We pray, Lord, that as you are working in our day and as you have worked in times past, we pray that you would help us to understand providence as is happening now, to understand your dealings of the past, and yet we would not presume to come with final interpretations. But we do pray, Lord, that that which ought to be obvious to us would be noticed and that we would be watchful, as Jesus said, when we see the signs of his coming that we would be careful to put our sins away, that we would be careful to follow with greater determination, to obey, to, to serve you. And we plead with you, Lord, that you would keep us from getting discouraged by all the events that are happening. We pray, Lord, that as it seems like our country is, is coming unraveled in these days, we, we plead with you, Lord, that you'd help us to see that, that your church, nevertheless, is being preserved, and that you will bring forth the church having been tried as as pure gold, and you will cause the righteous in the last day to shine in the kingdom of of your grace. And we plead with you, Lord, that, that you would help us to understand the times, that you would help us at least what we ought to understand, to understand what we see, what what is happening around us, and what has happened. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us nevertheless to to follow you, to obey you in faith, knowing that where we don't understand, you are still leading ahead. And you as the great commander of the battle will bring the final victory in the last day. We pray all these things in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.